Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas. This is the Share Our Strength podcast about people who are changing the world. I'm your host, Billy Shore. It's amazing when you realize how central food is to so many things that we care about. It affects our health. We see kids with nutritionally related problems, many of them overweight even though they're undernourished. It affects our ability to learn. She had to make sure she had lunch in the classroom because at the end of the day, that was going to be all she got. Food security affects our strength as a nation. Within arm's reach are people who are hungry, and there is a anxiety and a stigma attached to that. I'm Billy Shore. I'm here with two amazing Bostonians. We're outside of Washington for a change, and this is one of the best things probably that's ever happened to these conversations. Uh, Andy Husbands is a chef extraordinaire, has a restaurant here in Boston called Tremont 647, which everybody knows, and is about to open uh, a new one called The Smoke Shop. Uh, he's been involved with Share Strength for at least 20 years and does an annual dinner, which we'll have you talk about, Andy, that's raised uh, more than $160,000 uh, since you started doing it 17 years ago. Uh, and I'm here with uh, somebody who I guess is my boss. She's on the Share Strength Board of Directors, Judy Ann Bigby. Um, and before the, being on the Share Strength Board of Directors, Judy was the Secretary of Health and Human Services for the state of Massachusetts. Before that, uh, a physician and now a senior fellow at Mathematica, doing some very important work around the country on healthcare policy. So welcome, both of you. I'm thrilled to have you here. I thought we would just start a little bit by uh, talking about uh, what each of you uh, is doing now, kind of, and really, I guess, a little bit of the backstory, how you, how you got here, um, what brought you to this work, and, uh, and where you started. Let's start with you, Andy. So... I started with Share Our Strength and really charity work in general when I was in college. I worked for uh, Guy Abelson in Providence, Rhode Island, and I believe he was one of those. He was an iconic chef and restaurateur there, I guess restaurateur yeah. for a long time. Yeah. and Recently he, died. Right. And he, I believe he was with Share Our Strength from the beginning. Yep. We were very close to it. And him, along with some of my professors, um, if you can imagine, I wasn't really involved. I was kind of, I loved cooking and that's all I wanted to do. And um my professors and Guy really encouraged me to get involved with the community. I didn't really know what that meant, get involved, but I started working with Share Our Strength. Uh, I, as I moved to Boston, uh, there was a program, well, it's now called Cooking Matters, and I got involved with it, and it really made a difference to me to be involved and see hunger, right, the face of it, um, as well as as I looked back in my life, I realized, uh, I always knew this, that, um, you know, I was uh, federally assisted as a child. I got the 10 cents breakfast and then 10 cents lunch. And I, I just realized, you know, when we talk about um, food, we, uh, we talk about hospitality a lot and the act of how you treat people in your house and how you greet them. And I think a lot about that and I think a lot about food and how those all need to go together, I guess. And so me, it, it was a perfect connection of treating people well and helping people eat. It's it's a no-brainer for me. And say a little bit more about the passion for cooking. Where did that come from? Um, you know, in fourth grade, I did a demo on how to make donuts. And it was something that I've always done was cooking. And I think it was just something that felt naturally to me and just always enjoyed it. And, and now it's what I do, and I'm the luckiest guy ever. So there wasn't a chef in your family. It wasn't a, a mom or a grandmom who 
you know, was in the kitchen all the time. You just, it was just something that you gravitated no, towards. I think it was something that I, I could do and I could do well. I, I really wasn't uh, great at basketball or baseball and cooking was something I could make donuts. I wasn't great at basketball or baseball either. <laughs> and I still can't cook, unfortunately. Uh, Judy, how about you? Um, I would say as a physician, um, I did a lot of work in communities uh, looking at disparities in health, especially among uh, African-American communities uh, and looking at the impact of uh, food access, poverty on the explosion of chronic diseases, especially diabetes. But the work in the community um, really um, centered around the fact that there are certain communities, even in Boston, where people don't have access to the right foods. The things that are more exp- ex- are less expensive are often foods that promote obesity uh, and therefore diabetes. And in some of the work that I've done with African-American women especially, um, they really want to be able to provide healthy, nutritious meals to their kids, but they can't afford it. These women ask the question, well, why do we have higher rates of obesity? And they started talking about the fact that they didn't think that they had as much access to fresh fruits and vegetables because they're too expensive or they can't easily get to them in their communities. And they decided to do a study Um, where on one day they took a shopping list that was uh, healthy foods and um, they went to four different uh, grocery stores, two in Hispanic black neighborhoods and two in primarily white communities, but it was the same store. And they priced out what it would cost. And it turned out that the food, which included fresh fruits and vegetables, yogurt, turkey, uh, those types of things, um, cost more money in the black and Latino community stores than they did in the white stores. This opened up their eyes to other issues, but um, they then looked around their communities to see, well, what other sources of food are there? And you know, they noticed a lot of fast food restaurants. Um, they, you know, there are corner convenience stores, but those stores mostly sell processed food, not much in the way of fresh vegetables. And if they were, they didn't look very fresh. But um, they also were extremely expensive. So now you would say, well, just because um, those foods are more expensive, how does that explain obesity? Well, it turns out that food that is cheaper is more likely to be um, mass manufactured, very processed, without much nutritional value, except it has a lot of calories. And so the more um, people on low incomes try to um, increase their food consumption by buying cheaper food, um, it actually helps to lead to more obesity. Um, Andy, I've heard you talk before about, as you mentioned earlier, about um, growing up as a child and uh, in a family that was on food assistance. And I've heard you talk about some of the ways that your mom tried to um, stretch out 
food dollars uh, sure. and recipes. And uh, say a little bit about what that's like. I've heard you talk about it enough, I guess, to to have the sense that um, that was memorable for you. I mean, that left a, you know that left an impression on you. We had popovers a lot, and that I think that's probably the story you're referring to. Is uh, and for those of you who haven't had a popover, um, it's basically eggs and milk and flour. It's a relatively uh, cost-effective ingredients, and they are yummy. They're crunchy and gooey on the inside, and I remember eating these a lot with tuna fish, canned tuna fish a lot, and it was one of my favorite meals. And my mother, um, who is a fantastic chef now, um, you know, she was learning to become a really good cook, and I think she also knew that we needed to eat... um, not processed foods, not that there was that much in the 1970s as there is now with the Lunchables and things like that. And, um, you know, I remember going to the store and I remember we had funny money. Like it didn't look the same as everyone else, but there was no sense of shame and we were very proud and just had, um, I, I, I just feel fortunate that my mother was was cooking and making us really good meals. Uh, you know, I, I think for us it was... Um, you know, a, 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 a patch, a way to get to where we needed to go. And it was very helpful for us. And some kids obviously grow up in much rougher circumstances. I'm thinking of kids and maybe some that uh, you referred to, Judy, who um, are children that are severely physically and mentally impacted by the lack of food. There's a study that came out recently, you're probably familiar with it or more than I am, but Columbia University, Dr. Kim Noble uh, did a study. They correlated uh, incomes and brain size, and they found that for children who grow up in families with incomes of less than $25,000 a year, their the, the brain surface volume is actually 6% less than families who grow up with incomes of $150,000 a year. They didn't do any other, anything else other than correlate MRI brain scans with income, and this is what they found. And of course, that's a tremendously powerful impact. So when you talk, Judy, about the disparities that you see in the community, and when you think about that being writ large across a, you know, a broad sector of our community, um, that, that becomes something that affects all of us, right? That's not just these kids and these families, that's our education system, that's our healthcare costs, that's really affecting every one of us. Sure. It, it translates into everything, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, what makes America great, but when we look at the future of the country, if we don't have um, not only just a healthy workforce, but um, if you think about all of the potential leaders and innovators and, um, you know, role models for the country that could be coming from these communities um, that might not, uh, then there's, uh, you know, the impact on the country is tremendous. If I could just jump in, because um, this is something, as a business owner, and uh, we are about to grow uh, substantially um, from 30 employees to 130 employees um, and, and increase for the next couple of years, it concerns me. And, um, and I don't know how much you pay attention to what's going on with the labor in Boston for restaurants, because this is what I know. We are We have a problem. And it is I am confused why anybody doesn't think feeding children is so important and why having an educated children is, is so important. And if we know that when children eat, they do better in school 
And I'm not talking about making everybody become doctors. That's not what I'm saying. Just educated workforce that can read a label so they know they're using the right soap, basically. It's a, this is a, I think it's, it's such a big, big problem. The restaurant industry employs 10% of Massachusetts. And 10%. Yeah, 10%. We're a big chunk of it. Yeah. Uh, there were mainly small little operators. There's some great big operators, but mainly we're small operators. And we need an educated workforce. And um, and is anybody working on on inside the restaurant industry on that particular issue? The restaurant association? Or? Yeah, the MRAs were heavily involved in it. We have something That's called the Massachusetts Restaurant Association. Yes, and uh, Pro Start, which we're trying to teach uh, children at a young age about the industry. Um, unfortunately, our industry has gotten uh, a bad rap. Not necessarily, um, not necessarily wrong, but um, you know, you guys all know about the screaming chef and. And the long hours, and 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 that's fine for what it used to be. But um, well, just because my father beat me doesn't mean I need to beat my children. Situation. Um, what we're seeing is, it, which is, there's great chefs out there um, that we we're treating people humanely, paying them humanely, and um, encouraging them to really to go well in this, be well in this career. And um, that's what we're seeing now. So, but I think sometimes people think it's going to be, you know. The comment I get is, oh, you want a restaurant, you must work all the time. Well, I do, but I have a good life balance as well. Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and it's traditionally a time of gratitude and reflection, and one in which many of us ask ourselves how we can be helping others in our community. At Chair Strength, we've come up with a very simple but fun way for you to get involved. It's called Friendsgiving. To find out all the steps for success in hosting a Friendsgiving party, go to nokidhungry.org. And just imagine being at Thanksgiving dinner while kids in our country are thanking you. I'm here with Andy Husbands, the chef and restaurateur from Tremont 647, almost uh, opening a new restaurant very soon, uh, Smoke Shop, um, and Judy Ann Bibby, who's a senior fellow at Mathematica. We've raised another issue that really can only be addressed through public policy effectively, probably most effectively. And Judy, you've had a, you know, a bird's eye view on this. You served as Secretary of Health and Human Services for the state of Massachusetts, so you were a senior policymaker, you've, you've seen, I think, both what the potential is for policy, but also um, what the challenges are in trying to uh, create good policy. And one of the things that has, has struck me, I was um, on uh, last weekend, uh, on Tuesday in California in Sacramento with Governor Jerry Brown. So here's a governor of a state that, um, as has often been said, if it were a country, would probably be like the sixth or eighth largest country in the world. It's enormously complicated state and he cares a lot about these issues but um, he was not he was fundamentally not aware that there was this huge opportunity to feed more kids that that more than take San Francisco for example only 31 percent of the kids who were eligible for school breakfast are getting it in Oakland across the bay only 36 percent so one of the things we were there to tell Governor Brown was that they've left 162 million dollars in Washington. Share Strength actually committed to spend $38 million in California over the next 10 years to leverage $162 million annually. So I think one of the challenges is how do we bring, raise the visibility of these issues so a governor who really does care about this, as Governor Brown does, as Governor Deval Patrick uh, does, um, former Governor Deval Patrick, how do we raise the visibility, get this on their radar screens? So I, I think that there are a couple of things that um, could help to make it easier 
for states and other policymakers to take advantage of these programs. Number one, I think just the, the, the education part and letting people know what exactly school lunch, school breakfast is and why it's important, but not just letting the educators know. Anyone who is a child advocate should know about those programs and should know whether or not their state or their city or wherever they're working is taking advantage of these programs for the children in their community. So instead of thinking about it only from the point of view of, well, school lunch or school breakfast is an education or a school issue, it's a whole community issue. And I think that um, making sure that the educators know about it, the child advocates know about it, the child welfare um, advocates know about it um, is an important thing. How do we do that, Andy, more with the business community? I, I feel like at Share Our Strength, we've had the blessing of very enlightened small business leaders who are passionate about the issue of hunger, passionate about the issue of nutrition of kids. Uh, but I find that there are not as many business leaders as there could be, uh, particularly leaders of large businesses whose voices do get heard in uh, government-making circles uh, that uh, put enough time or lift their voices on this issue. First of all, I guess, do you agree with that? Do you think there's an opportunity there? And then what would it take us to, to seize that and make good on it? Uh, well, to back up, um, you said 137 million that California was leaving. California's case, 162 million. 162 million. Uh, I'd point out that that yes, that money goes to feeding children, which is great. But isn't that also a business opportunity? Doesn't that money go to the California growers? Goes to the um, the people, exactly. the workers, and everything? So I mean, I, I think that's where I would attack. It's it's jobs, and that's what everybody's looking for is jobs. So that also provides jobs. It's hard with 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 restaurants. Uh, you know, it's getting us together is like herding cats. Um, we all kind of have our own little focus, which is our small little community um, and our employees, and making sure that we are turning a uh, profit. That's what businesses do, and for restaurants, it's a very slim um, profit margin. With that said, um, what I think is really neat that's happened here, as you mentioned, the dinner that we do at my restaurant every year for the last 17 or so years, um, we've partnered with the MRA, the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, this year, and we pulled in triple the amount of money, which is exciting, but also that, I would assume, means triple the amount of exposure. And uh, I'm sure, I know that every state has a restaurant association, and I think that is where we need to get the information out and, and, and talking to them. Um, yes, we do the Taste of the Nation every year. That has somewhere between 60 and 80 restaurants, depending on, I'm, I'm sure, what city. And um, But those are generally focused in the bigger cities. So I think when we talk about the MRA, the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, we're talking about Massachusetts. And what's great about this dinner is it was all throughout the state. And I think that's a good way is to get out there through the, um, you know, through the business associations. Um, because I, I, I think it's... It's hard because we do focus on what we need to do, but I think most restaurateurs are looking at it, looking at the community, looking at their staffing issues, and looking how to, to make it better, and we're looking for the future. Let's As we wrap up, let's talk about what comes next for each of you. Uh, Andy, you've written, I think, three uh, books, including Wicked Good Barbecue, Wicked Good Burgers. You've got a new restaurant opening up called Smoke Shop. Tell us about that, and what else is in your future? 
Um, actually, I've written four cookbooks. Four books. And, and I'm up writing my fifth one now because uh, I liked, I'm not busy enough. So I'm writing another book on barbecue. Uh, this one, The Wicked Good Barbecue, is more about competition-style barbecue. And this new one's more about home style, so what you can do in your backyard. And I'm opening a new restaurant called The Smoke Shop, which is going to bring uh, world-class barbecue to, to Cambridge. I'm very excited. Excellent. Judy, how about at Mathematica? What are you um, working on there and what comes next for you? So part of what I do is um, look at uh, how various forms of health reform are impacting outcomes for individuals. Um, there's a movement um, to think about, well, you know, health insurance is really important, but it doesn't necessarily make people healthy. And so there's a trend now to really think about, well, how do we get to the root causes of poor health, the social determinants, and what role does healthcare play in that? I think it's a really fascinating question given all the concern about how expensive healthcare is. Um, and as health, health providers, health systems think about well, if we really want to keep people healthy, do we deal with their housing situation, with their um, access to food, with the way the transportation system works, with the built environment? Um, I think the Flint situation um, cries out for us to be more cognizant of the interrelationship between the environment policy and health of communities. And um, I'd like to see that work grow and for us to learn more about how to make it work. Andy Husbands, Judy Ann Bigby, I've known you both a long time uh, and I've known your work and I just so admire the impact that you've had, not just in this community, but around the country because you help people directly uh, in Boston and Massachusetts, but I think you inspire people all over the nation. So I'm really, really grateful that you were here today and thank you for sharing your strength. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. I hope you'll go to our website, shareourstrength.org slash passion, to discover how you can get involved to make a difference in your community. Add passion and stir. Big chefs, big ideas, is the podcast from Share Our Strength. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.